This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Michael R. Jackson Bonner, author of the book, The Last Empire in Iran. Mike, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I I would say that... uh... I am a longtime enthusiast of uh, of Iranian history, going back to you know the, even in 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 high school. Um, I, I was always fascinated by topics like the Persian Wars or um, the poetry of uh, Omar Khayyam and 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 so forth. I uh, did my undergrad in classics and was always sort of fascinated by the Roman East and by uh, conflicts with uh, with Iran and and cultural exchanges between the two and so forth and uh, it was only uh, in in uh, my master's and 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 doctorate uh, that that I uh, sort of got into Iran uh, into Iranian history in earnest and I found it. I found it very rewarding. Since then, I came to uh, I came to do my master's degree with all of the uh, uh, necessary languages to to study uh, Sasanian history, um, and uh, this sort of came as a, came as a surprise to me that that it was a sort of understudied, uh, underappreciated field, and my supervisor sort of pushed me into it. Uh, I ha- I should say though that I. My original sort of fascination, my original intention in 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 graduate school was to study Byzantium, the sort of later uh, iteration of the Roman Empire. You know, after I mean, it's sort of debatable when it when it starts, but sort of the late the late Roman Empire of maybe the fifth, uh, sixth, seventh century onward to the to the fall in the fifteenth century. That that was that was my main area of interest. But my supervisor, uh, James Howard Johnston, strongly suggested that I get that I get into uh, Sasanian Persia, and I did, and I found it extremely uh, rewarding. This uh, this book, The Last Empire of Iran, is my third book, and it comes after two studies based on my master's and doctorate that that dealt with really sort of. Uh, you know, historiographical problems, source criticism, the the study of of, of the actual historical sources that that uh, f- shape our understanding of 
of of the uh, Sasanian era and early Islam. Uh, they don't make for very good reading for 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 general public uh, really sort of aimed at, at specialists and this book sort of brings together the the sort of fruits of that research and uh, using uh, you know you using the sources that I studied I've composed a narrative history of the uh, last empire of Iran before the coming of uh, Islam uh, the uh, sort of great continental power that that ruled Iran uh, in the sort of late Roman, early Byzantine era, uh, right up, up to the to the Arab conquest in the year uh, 651. And I've aimed it, uh, you know, I've give I've I, I, I've aimed to give it a solid sort of scholarly infrastructure. Uh, basing it on uh, the, the the best uh, historical sources available, as well as modern research. You can find all that stuff in the footnotes and so forth. But I've tried to produce a narrative that I think uh, a well, uh, you know, a well-informed layperson could could read for pleasure as well. So hopefully I've sort of captured the two uh, audiences and uh, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, enthusiasts of Iran can can uh, can get something out of it besides just scholars. I can definitely appreciate the need for a book like that. What led you to decide that this was the challenge that you wanted to undertake for your third book? That is an excellent question. Well, um, the, the 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 sort of mundane answer uh, is that the publisher, the Gorgias Press. Uh, got in touch with me um, because they had they, they basically suggested that I could I could publish my doctoral thesis with them uh, and uh, unbeknownst to them I had I already had a deal to to do that with a with a European publisher but I said you know how about you know, how about a different book? You know, why not? Why not a book that that just sort of tells the the story as a sort of uh, uh, almost like a reference manual uh, of uh, Sasanian history, based on the studies that I've already done? And uh, they sort of chewed it over and thought about it, and uh, they agreed to do it. Uh, so that that's sort of the, you know how it came about. Why I wanted to do it is that. There just aren't very many uh, narrative histories of of the period available. Certainly not in English. The sort of main uh, reference text is by a, a Danish scholar by the name of uh, Arthur Christensen, who p published his book *L'Iran sous les Sassanides* in in French in. I think the first edition was at some point in the 30s, and then there was another one, I think, in the the 40s, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, it's a good text that people will still refer to, but it has been, you know, scholarship has, has moved on considerably uh, since then. Um, in English, there was the sort of late 19th century text by what is his name? Can't remember his name. Roland, Rawlinson. Rawlinson is his name. Uh, he wrote a book called *The Seventh Great Oriental Monarchy*, which is uh, 
you know, uh, nobody would refer to it now, but it makes it makes for decent uh, reading. You know, it's a it's a it's a proper narrative history that that brings together um, all of the scholarship that was then available in I think the eighteen nineties. So you know, very very old. Uh, since then, uh, the American Iranian scholar Turaj Daryal-e has has published uh, a narrative. Uh, sort of um, political and cultural history called Sasanian Persia. That was in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. So anyway, long, long story short is that there, are, I felt that there was, there was an opportunity to tell the story again. You know, why, you know, why have so few uh, narrative histories of, uh, of the Sasanian era? Why not have more? Uh, and, you know, I felt I felt I was up to the challenge. I might write something that, you know, someone might want to read. Uh, but I also thought to myself, you know, what is the sort of approach that, you know, if thinking back to when I was a young scholar starting out, you know, what what is the sort of text that I wish that I could have had ref, ref, by way of a reference text on on Sasanian history? Uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write one like that, you know, that just sort of covers, you know, covers the, the, the main events of political and military history and that situates the uh, Sasanian Empire within its, uh, uh, you know, greater geopolitical context. Uh, obviously, conflict with Rome is a big part of that. Uh, contacts with the... Uh, you know, overland, uh, sorry, uh, international trading contacts with India and China, that sort of thing. I thought, you know, that would be sort of cool to to throw in. And of course, I wanted to put a great deal of emphasis on on the the interaction between Iran as a sort of sedentary uh, continental power with the nomadic world uh, to the north. Uh, this is, to me personally, this is a fascinating. Uh, topic uh, in and of itself, but I also believe that you can't really understand Roman and Persian history at the time without also grasping uh, the uh, the interactions between the the, the settled so-called civilized uh, empires to the south with the mobile and, and, and nomadic uh, peoples to the north. You know, some of the most uh, Probably one of the most famous, uh, you know, for for uh, enthusiasts of Roman history would be the Huns, right? But it's not well known that the Huns also had a great deal of uh, influence and, and impact on Iran as well. But there are many more such groups beyond the Huns who exerted, uh, you know, who who shaped uh, the the period uh, to to a great extent. And then, of course, there were contacts uh, between. Uh, you know, uh, di diplomatic and cultural contacts with uh, with China, another great power of the the era. And I wanted to sort of weave that all in, and 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 show uh, show that the Sasanian Empire was a, a a real world power of the day. It was a, it was a, a a superpower along with Rome and China that held its own. Uh, for hundreds of years against, uh, you know, Roman uh, Roman armies, 
and uh, w which was a, a formidable cultural power as well that who, whose legacy formed the basis of uh, what we call uh, the Islamic uh, Golden Age and uh, whose influence uh, you know continues to this day. So that that was the kind of text I wish I had had, or that that is the kind of a text that told that story is is the sort of thing that I wish I had had as a young scholar. So I thought I may as well write it myself. It's fascinating to read your book because it, you, all that comes across, and it really does. It really it is fascinating to consider how little we have in the English language about the Sasanian Empire to, to, to study it, considering its scope, considering its importance. We're talking about interacting with one of the, with perhaps the most famous empire of the ancient world. We're talking about it's on the uh, cusp of this uh, dramatically transformative period in, uh, in the history of Eurasia. And yet there is so little about it that, that really informs us as to how this empire operated, the role that it played in its era, and mm -hmm. why it was that it, you know, fell uh, before this Islamic onslaught that spills out of Arabia in the seventh century CE. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I and I don't. I mean, I don't know how to answer that 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 question. I don't. I don't know what the reason for that is. I mean, it's it's in some ways it's similar to the neglect of you know, Eastern Roman history, that for a lot of people, you have, uh, you know, a vision of uh, Roman history shaped by things like I Claudius and, you know, Asterix and, uh, you know, uh, people might know the name or, or like HBO's Rome, for example. People, people may have heard of Cleopatra or whatever, but you know, it, it, as as you get, for, or, or maybe they know Constantine, who comes, you know, much later. But then be, after that, it's you know, it's not well known that after the after the collapse of the of the Western Roman Empire, that the East carries on for you know, quite quite a long while, um, and it, it could be that you know that that sort of neglect of 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 a, of a kind of um, unusual, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you would call it, like uh, recondite aspect of of uh, of uh, of European history. It, it just sort of gets worse and worse the further you go east. You know, I, I, I don't know, but the the other problem is 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 a problem just of uh, the, the the sheer lack of of historical sources that are that are accessible. Uh, in 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 any kind of uh, uh, you know a lack of sources in an accessible modern translation, let's say. So in the case of in the case of uh, uh, Western Roman history, you, you you know you can practically you know in any used bookshop you could probably find a, a serviceable translation of the commentaries of of Julius Caesar. Uh, or you know uh, maybe even uh, the the meditations of uh, Marcus Aurelius or whatever you know the, the 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 penguin editions and so forth you can find that stuff easily but there's no equivalent for there's no equivalent for 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 uh, Eastern Roman sources and and none for uh, Sasanian ones so uh, you know I guess people can be forgiven for not knowing a lot about it of course this is not really the case within 
uh, or it's like arguably not the case in 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 Iran, in modern Iran itself, or 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 even amongst uh, uh, you know scholars of Islam, for example. Like uh, when I say scholars of Islam, I mean like uh, people who study Quranic uh, exegesis and so forth. Like one of one of the one of the most uh, famous. Uh, if not the most famous uh, Quranic exegesis was written by the scholar and historian Tabari, who uh, who flourished in the in the tenth uh, century. He ninth uh, tenth uh, century of our era. He uh, is probably the most famous repository of of some relics of Sasanian Sasanian history, uh, which he sort of recycles in a, in a universal chronicle, but even that is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, obscure for, for a lot of people. And, you know, you, you have to make, uh, you would, you would normally have to make a, a, a considerable effort to, to learn, you know, learn classical Arabic or whatever to get, to get access to it. And it's, it's by no means, uh, by no means an easy feat to to understand it, uh, and and there just hasn't been there hasn't been a uh, sort of long period of many centuries of of, of digesting the, uh, uh, the the Sasanian past and sort of assimilating it to uh, uh, contemporary uh, scholarship as there has been, for example, sin, in in the West since the uh, since the Renaissance. Uh, so. Well, I was wondering if you could start us off by providing us with some context to help understand the Sasanian Empire. What was going on in Eurasia in the uh, centuries immediately preceding that rise that you've already referenced? What was and what was how was it that the house established itself and was able to rule over such a large portion of the world in such a short period of time? Good question. Okay, so when we talk about the Sasanian Empire, we're talking about uh, the, an, an empire based in um, Iran, uh, or uh, an empire of, of the, the the most sizable part of which was corresponds to the modern day Iran, that was uh, run and and uh, headed by uh, a family uh, called Sasan, uh, which appeared in the third century uh, A.D. And which collapsed in the in the year 651. So, let's go back to the third century. The third century was a time of extreme uh, political uncertainty and and uh, you know verging on anarchy, uh, off and on within the the Roman Empire. The uh, the Roman state uh, was sort of n- never really evolved anything that we could consider like a you know dynastic uh politics or any kind of smooth you know regular succession according to what we might recognize as like a constitutional uh authority or, or some such thing um and uh, the system that was established by the emperor augustus the first first roman emperor was basically in in no longer adequate to to govern this uh, gigantic uh, state that had spread over 
you know, most of the Mediterranean and, and was sort of encroaching eastward uh, through uh, Asia Minor and, and, and Syria and Mesopotamia. At the time, the great uh, continental Iranian power that, that abutted uh, the Roman Empire was uh, the so-called Parthian state. Uh, don't need to get into too much detail about the Parthians, but the, the Parthians were basically a nomadic Iranian people who overthrew the uh, successors to Alexander the Great, who in his turn had conquered the, the Achaemenid Empire established by uh, Cyrus the Great. The Parthian Empire was a, a decentralized one, almost uh, feudal in nature, or semi semi-feudal, and uh, the the chief uh, Parthian king was sort of a king amongst other sort of sub sub kings, regional regional kings below him, uh, which of course gives. Uh, certain sense or meaning to the phrase king of kings, right, which was a sort of quintessentially Iranian uh, royal title. Um, the founder of the uh, Sasanian uh, state was a guy by the name of Ardashir, Ardashir in, in Persian, who was the Parthian governor of the the province called Fars in uh, southwestern Iran. He launched a rebellion in the 220s, which was probably probably a response to uh, Parthian uh, infighting within the royal house, civil wars brought on by repeated uh, humiliations uh, inflicted by uh, Roman armies. And uh, the result was taking advantage of the sort of chaotic state of the empire that Ardashir was able to overthrow the last Parthian king. He ended up establishing, uh, over time, a much more centralized and uh, uh, sort of bureaucratically organized uh, state than, than the Parthian one had been. And... He also established uh, an organized system of dynastic uh, power, which was f far more uh, potent ideologically than than the Roman notion of, you know, a soldier emperor or, uh, uh, you know, a sort of uh, uh, emperor who is also, you know, a military commander and so forth. So Ardashir is also credited with the establishment of the first confessional, the first major confessional state, maybe not the first one of all time, but certainly the first major one, uh, well ahead of uh, Constantine the Great and obviously well ahead of, uh, uh, you know, Muhammad and the uh, Muslim caliphates. The... Zoroastrian religion became the official ideology of state under Ardashir and his successors. And this, uh, you know, in, in, in Iranian and Roman uh, history, this has no precedent. It was a, it was a revolution. Uh, the result was 
probably a you know certainly a, a leader and an empire which i think uh the romans couldn't really understand and and come to terms with roman sources depict ardashir and his immediate successors as uh extremely aggressive uh you know belligerent uh, opponents who who are demanding the the cession of all sorts of territory you know, uh, held by Rome, which the the Sasanian kings argue is their historical patrimony that they're entitled to reconstruct the borders of their ancient realm, uh, going back to Cyrus and and, uh, and 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 Darius and their successors, and that the the house of sasan will basically stop at nothing nothing short of military defeat to uh you know wrest these territories from rome now it's debatable to what extent that's a roman misunderstanding uh, of of iranian foreign policy or not i don't think that it's that far off from the truth uh as i argue in the book but the fact is that from then on, you have a much more, much better organized, centralized, potent uh, military power that the Romans are now facing down along their eastern uh, frontier. And a lot of our knowledge of the early days of the Sasanian dynasty unsurprisingly comes from Roman sources who are who are suddenly in, in a time of severe crisis, they're suddenly confronted by a new and, and far more uh, uh, aggressive opponent in the East. Now, the Sasanians, of course, they also had their own East, and Ardashir is credited with uh, securing the uh, Eastern marches of, of the Iranian Empire against uh, uh, nomadic uh, or semi-nomadic states. Uh, at the time, there, there, there were sort of a group of people uh, known as the Kushans in the east, and uh, they began life long in the past as a nomadic uh, people uh, along the borders of China, and they had migrated uh, southwestward toward uh, toward uh, Iran. It was Ardashir who basically annexed the Kushan state, attached it to his empire, and you know gra gradually sort of absorbed uh, absorbed them politically and uh, and uh, culturally. A lot is unclear about that that period, but the uh, you know let's say that the overall point is a much more potent, a much more uh, aggressive and a much more politically organized uh, empire has suddenly appeared within Iran. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that it's understandable why they had to be given what you described. I mean, this is an empire that, you know, faces challenges to their east, uh, to their west, and to their northwest. And you describe in in, in those chapters about how they're dealing not just with, you know, people in, 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 you know, the old Bactria or from the Romans, but they're also dealing with the Huns. You've already mentioned that. You, you mentioned that earlier. And, and how the, these challenges are, are really uh, ta- uh, taxing their ability to effectively organize against what are really some very formidable threats in, in various forms. It's not just, they're not just dealing with settled empires. They're not just dealing with nomads. They're dealing with both types. And it really does force them to have to keep, you know, on their toes all, all the time and, and respond to very threats in, 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 in distant parts of their empire. Exactly right. So just to expand on that, um, it's not it's not widely recognized, but if you if you think about it, Eurasia is one huge landmass stretching from uh, Portugal on you know the, the extreme west all the way to uh, you know Korea uh, and and beyond uh, on on the other end of it. But between roughly, uh, you know, Eastern Hungary and Manchuria, you have this huge, uh, vast area that that we call the steppe, where you could walk or ride a horse, you know, from one end to the other with, you know, without encountering, you know, much to hold you back. Uh, And... you know, uh, Iran is very much open to this to this steppe area in a way that the Roman Empire was not, and certainly in a way that you know a way that is different but comparable to China. China was faced with the uh, you know quote unquote barbarians of the steppe, sort of you know face to face for most of its history, and of course the last ruling. Uh, the last ruling house of 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 uh, of the of the Chinese imperial period was of of nomadic uh, Manchurian uh, origin, and they were only deposed in 1911. So Iran is is faced with a similar uh, problem that the 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 steppe peoples sort of abut and threaten Iran directly in a way that uh, they did not. Uh, abut and threaten Rome directly. And of course, the Roman Empire is mostly, or at least the heartland of the empire, is sort of insulated by the Mediterranean Sea uh, and, uh, you know, formidable mountains and, 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 and so forth in the, in the north, in the, in the northeast. Iran did not have those natural uh, defenses. And so as it's facing down Rome, in, in, in along its uh, western frontier, it's also confronting, uh, you know, wave after wave of, of nomadic uh, powers in in the north and in the east. So any state, I would say, that is uh, capable of holding its own against those two forces, uh, I, I, I would I would say that this is that we're talking about a, a very well organized, potent, militarily capable state, far more so than has been uh, traditionally 
recognized. And, and that's, that's one of the points I try to bring home in the book. You divide Sasanian history into roughly into four eras. You, you describe the, the rise of the Sasanian Empire, and that's about a, a, a 150 years there. You have a period that you refer to as, as the Renewal Era. You have a, a period of recovery. And, and then you have what might be called the Fall. I, I was wondering if you could explain what distinguishes, in particular, uh, the first period of with the rise, with that second period, the recovery. What was going on during the first period, and 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 how do we, and what brings about this transition to what might be regarded as a period of recovery? Okay, fascinating question. the The rise of the Sasanian Empire is, or it's possible to understand it as as a sort of more centralized uh, continuation of the of the previous Parthian uh, previous Parthian Empire with with an emphasis on uh, winning uh, winning uh, political and military prestige against the Romans, uh, continuing to sort of wrest uh, territory from from Rome. And and you know most most of the emphasis is is on the Iranian uh, West. So this means there are a lot of conflicts over borders. There are you know uh, treaties form with Rome that, that try uh, try to regularize the relationship or you know. Uh, you know, at the early attempts at something that we might recognize as, as international law, conflicts over places like Armenia, where there, there was sort of uh, uh, aristocratic houses that would sort of, in some some favored Iran, some favored you know uh, Rome. These conflicts and 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 sort of contests eventually culminate in. The early fourth century, with the uh, uh, full-scale invasion of Iran by the uh, Roman Emperor Julian, so-called Julian the Apostate, and of course this this comes to a very bad end, uh, and uh, Julian himself is is killed, and e even though the Roman army gets uh, reaches the the gates of the uh, Sasanian capital at Tizafin, which is not far from uh, modern-day Baghdad in uh, Iraq, or what is now Iraq. Uh, despite that, uh, the Romans the Romans uh, are, are humiliated, and and the balance of power uh, then swings to Iran. So this situation could have. We're talking again the the early the early fourth century. This this situation could have continued. It could have. Um, you know, we 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 could have had a history of just the sort of constant war of, you know, war of attrition between the two great powers in in Western Eurasia, and you know they might have uh, carried on roughly as 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 they always had been, but that isn't what happened. What happened uh, was what we call the great. Uh, migration of peoples in the fourth century. The, the, this is the migration that brought the Huns and the the, the Goths into into Roman territory, and uh, which 
very much accelerated the 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 decline and, and collapse of Roman power in in Europe, and the the collapse of uh, of the Western Roman Empire. To understand that, we have to cast our eyes to China. That the people that we call the the Huns, uh, led famously by Attila, um, they are the political successors possibly the cultural ones as well, uh, but certainly the political successors to a group of people whom the Chinese had called the Xiongnu, uh, a nomadic power uh, along their uh, uh, northern uh, northern border of, of China, who had been uh, raiding... Uh, uh, raiding early Chinese states for quite some time, and of course the uh, ramparts of of the Great Wall, not the part that you always see in pictures. That's a later one, but the the older part of the Great Wall was built to establish the limits of 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 you know of uh, of of the Chinese state and to keep these people, the Xiongnu, out. And uh, Despite that, obviously the uh, the Great Wall didn't entirely work. But the the, the fact is that eventually uh, the uh, Chinese emperors of the Han state eventually had to acknowledge uh, parity with with the Huns, and uh, there were sort of marriage alliances and you know, gift exchanges and so forth that, that sort of kept them at bay for some time. But eventually, this relationship. Eventually, this relationship broke down. The Han emperors uh, succeeded in, in crushing a portion of the Xiongnu and dividing them into a northern and a southern half. The northern half was eventually sort of uh, obliterated. And the, uh, this is obviously a gross simplification, but it'll have to do. And the southern, the southern uh, Xiongnu eventually moved south of the Great Wall and were sort of adopted in, in, in by by Chinese imperial power in much the same way the Germanic federates were by the Romans. They were the sort of uh, guardians of the frontier uh, who were entrusted with keeping, you know, other nomadic powers out and uh, were ostensibly uh, allies of, of, of the Han. This relationship itself eventually broke down and as the, the Han state uh, collapsed, uh, the uh, southern Xiongnu uh, rebelled, uh, ran wild throughout China and in the early fourth century uh, conquered or I should say, destroyed the two uh, the two Chinese capitals, then then ruled by the Jin uh, dynasty of uh, Chang'an and Luoyang. And in response, uh, a military um, dictator called uh, Cao Cao uh, came to power and organized what we would now recognize as uh, a genocide. Uh, in order to exterminate the uh, Xiongnu and their uh, uh, nomadic allies. And this, I believe, this event is what is ultimately at the root of what we call the great uh, migrations of peoples, that the, 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 the Xiongnu flee 
the the borderlands of China, uh, pushing before them all the other nomadic powers uh, and and other uh, or, or like semi semi nomadic uh, and nomadic powers that they find before them. Most famously, the uh, Visigoths uh, and Ostrogoths, and they arrive the 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 uh, relics of the uh, Huns Xiongnu. They arrive on the eastern uh, flank of Iran and the northeastern one of the Roman Empire, and the result of this is that the two the two sedentary powers Rome and Iran are shaken to their foundations and it's only a short while uh, between you know the middle of the fourth century and the year 410 when Rome is sacked by Alaric the Visigoth for the for the first time uh, they are shaken to their foundations and they are waging basically they're fighting for their lives fighting for their very existence uh, against um, the Huns and and uh, in the case of Rome against uh, Germanic uh, Germanic invaders. That actually raises uh, an interesting question, which is that you, a lot of historians will find within that and have so for centuries the uh, the you know the source of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Maybe not the origins of it, maybe not the reasons for it, but basically they they find that this linear narrative, and yet. You know, as you know, you explain the Sasanian history, it is it doesn't bring about a collapse. That you're 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 talking about a empire that is much more able to uh, push back and hold off and continue onward. What were some of the the key differences taking place there? Okay, fascinating question. The key difference is that for. First of all, I have to couch this in saying that it's very hard to interpret the sources. So it's this, these are mostly my own uh, inferences, which I think are justified by the evidence. The key difference is that Persia, I think, understood the uh, the aims of the of the of the Huns better than than Rome did. That the Eastern provinces of the Sasanian state were what you could call occupied by uh, two successive groups of Huns. One, probably these are probably dynastic names. The first one was the Kidarite Huns, named named for their leader Kidara, and uh, another one uh, came after called the Hephthalite Huns. Uh, it's, it's kind of I don't know what Hephthalite means. Nobody can agree, but that's that's probably a dynastic name. Also, um, the per, the Persian state was better able to grasp what it is that the Huns were trying to achieve, and better able to deal with it in, 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 in through their through their foreign policy. Hmm. The Roman state was not the. Uh, what what I think was at stake here is that the, the 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 Huns the Huns wanted the appearance of a tributary condition uh, for for the sedentary powers that they that they uh, 
uh, you know, that they dwelt near, much the same way as the Xiongnu and the Han state had reached a kind of agreement that could be port- so that either one of them could portray the other as subordinate, but n- but n- but if it came down to it, neither could really assert that 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 one had the upper hand. So the the Han the Han paid a tribute to the Xiongnu and gave their you know royal gave princesses in in marriage and the Xiongnu uh refrained from pillaging the you know the 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 hand state and 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 uh, uh you know wouldn't interfere in in the uh, in the affairs of their uh, frontier towns and so forth uh so you know, neither one is aiming to crush the other one, and both can claim that they've they've got the other one in a in in the position that they want. The Persian state did the same thing. They ended up paying tribute to the Kidarite and Hephthite Huns. There were there were periods where the, you know there were moments when that was cancelled, and they resumed warfare. It was usually unsuccessful. There were there were some you know token victories there were some victories that were perhaps more important but on the whole it was never really possible or realistic to remove the the Kidarite or or Hephthite Huns so so it was safer and probably more uh, probably less expensive in the long run to pay them tribute in the case of Rome and, and the Huns that isn't what they do there was a sort of re- repeated military confrontations uh, but that exhausted uh, Rome, and uh, they never really had a decisive outcome. And if they had paid, if if they had uh, adopted a similar uh, practice, I think to Persia and and China, that they could have they could have outlasted the 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 eventual uh, implosion of Attila's uh, confederacy or, or 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 state, if you like, um, and. Uh, just to sum this up, in the case of Persia, they the the, the Sasanian state managed to managed to last a very long time, comparatively, I think, uh, against the the Huns, from about the middle of you know the middle of the of the fifth century to the middle of the sixth century. So you know a, a good hundred years at, at, at least. And they 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 uh, bided their time until uh, until the next nomadic power, the Turks, overthrew the Hephthalites and established, you know, a a, a a new hegemony within within Central Asia. So that's I, I was thinking, short. I, I was saying that, that really it is fascinating to consider the dynamic that uh, is created in this, which is that. Rome is uh, effectively kneecapped. That you have the uh, you have the collapse of its uh, presence in in most of Europe. You have uh, you know, it, it's it, it, it's it's fragmented. It's broken up among the descendants of of, of the uh, of the uh, of the nomads who've moved in, and you have the Eastern Empire, which is still uh, viable, but it's greatly weakened. And and that's the point at which the 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 the, the 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 uh, Sasanians really seem to have their moment that they're 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 they've been able to endure in a way the Romans didn't 
they still have the same threats, but they seem to be much better positioned to deal with them. Here I'm talking about that uh, uh, the end of the renewal period, the recovery period you're describing, where they really seem to, that, that, that seems to be a, a very strong period in their history. Very much so. And um, it's, it's paralleled by a similar renewal, you might say, uh, within the Roman state as well under the Emperor Justinian. You know, the, the sort of Indian summer. I don't know if that term is politically correct anymore, but, you know, the, the, the sort of last great hurrah of, of, of Roman greatness, according to some, uh, under, under Justinian with this sort of great uh, building project of which the Hagia Sophia is probably the greatest example, uh, as well as the uh, renewal of Roman law and so forth. I think that there are similar things happening within the, the Persian state as well. Um, and unsurprisingly, this is also the sort of apex uh, of of uh, great power uh, uh, relations, the sort of great game between between the two powers of the day. Uh, and it spreads the the contest sort of spreads throughout the the entire uh, late antique world uh, and even takes the form of a trade war. At one point, uh, over the the uh, the overland silk trade from China and the uh, the uh, Indian Ocean uh, maritime trade and so forth, um, what what exactly uh, triggers that? I think is uh, you know in the in the case in in the case of Rome, I I don't know what is ultimately responsible for that, but it, it could be the same cause as what I think is is. Is at work with Iran, which is the collapse. Collapse is perhaps too strong a word. The the sort of fading out and then collapse of the uh, of the of the Hun uh, of the Hephthalite Hunnish uh, Empire in the east. That the 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 politics of Central Asia and the the involvement of the of of Chinese uh, influence in the steppe world shifts and. The the half the the star begins to fall, and uh, conflict uh, conflict within the steppe eventually you know, between several nomadic powers in the steppe uh, eventually favors the Turks, and it's the rise of the Turks that that greatly destabilize uh, the half state, and eventually destroy it, and uh, at the same time. You know, you arguably have the, the you arguably have the same kind of sense of renewal within China that the 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 sort of the the much neglected uh, Sui dynasty and very brief Sui dynasty comes to power and then is shortly succeeded by the Tang, uh, who were the uh, you know sort of great. Uh, you know, cosmopolitan uh, uh, fluorescence of of, uh, of uh, indigenous Chinese culture after uh, several centuries of, uh, of of foreign rule. These all of these uh, uh, transformations begin in in the sixth century, and of course, the sixth century is also um, the uh, time at which Muhammad. Uh, was born, so it's a certain it's a period of transformation and 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 transition, and and possibly the last great 
uh, flourishing of uh, of uh, of the antique of the antique world, which I argue is brought about uh, by by the the, the shifting politics uh, within the steppe. And that's what I liked about how you framed that war between uh, the Sasanians and the Byzantines. It's the, it's the great last war of antiquity. You have these two empires, and it's one where, for a period of time, it looks as though the Sasanians are going to enjoy this uh, enormous triumph. They're going to come out of it stronger than ever. Yet, as you explain, it, it's within that effort that you have the seeds of the collapse that's going to follow within a few short decades. Yes. So the... Uh, that war, first of all, I can't I can't take credit for that phrase. The the last last war of MTV, that that was my supervisor, James Howard Johnston. As as much as I wish I had come up with that, it was, it was <laughs> he uh, and, and it's, he, he's actually about to publish a, a book entirely about that uh, war, which is eagerly uh, anticipated by everyone. I the the importance of that war. In in world history, I think uh, is is sadly sadly underappreciated, tragically underappreciated. It's one of the most consequential conflicts I think in in all of history, and I would uh, and certainly for the world in which we now live, um, the you know schoolmasters. I think greatly overemphasize, or at least they used to greatly over overemphasize conflicts like, uh, you know, the the the, the three hundred Spartans at Thermopylae, or uh, the uh, you know uh, conquest of of the Achaemenid Empire by Alexander the Great and so forth. I, I think that I think that the last war of antiquity vastly outranks those conflicts, and I'll uh, tell you why. Um, first of all, you have you have the decision from uh, the Persian government to basically liquidate the Roman Empire to to conquer it once and for all. That they're they're just you know they don't want to have a Western rival ever again. They take advantage of a Roman civil war that that, that uh, starts up in the beginning of the seventh century and in, and in the year 602 uh the persians invade and this is uh this this quickly turns into uh an, an all-out total war for for mastery of of western eurasia toward the toward the close of the 620s it still looks as though iran is going to uh swallow swallow the Roman Empire whole. They've conquered all of the, the eastern provinces from, from Egypt uh, and Syria and most of uh, Asia Minor, several islands like Rhodes. And uh, the final move is, is, is going to be the, uh, the, 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 the siege of Constantinople that will finally snuff out the Roman Empire. Now, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, the Emperor Heraclius uh, led a counterattack through Armenia and took the fight right to the vicinity of uh, the Persian capital and provoked a coup whereby the king, uh, Khosrow II, 
was uh, murdered and replaced by his son. But the fact is that this war uh, was widely believed to be ushering in the end of the world. It was portrayed in apocalyptic terms, uh, I, I argue, by both sides. And the uh, some of this is inspired by uh, you know, pre-existing religious ideas, the Zoroastrian idea of uh, uh, the Iranian Empire being the sort of uh, origin of of all political and religious order, and the earthly agents of of uh, Ahura Mazda sort of extending the the sway of the Persian king, you know, throughout the civilized world and and, and so forth, and then of course you have the the uh, Christian idea of uh, holy war, which achieves its first great, uh, you know, articulation in the context of this fight. And we, of course, also have the um, earliest portions of the Quran, uh, one of which comments directly on on this conflict it predicts a roman victory and uh you know we have muhammad sort of rooting for the for the christian side um so i i mean that 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 may seem you know of small significance i don't think it is i th i think that this war has left uh uh, and a, a, a profound impression on uh, at least one of the of the great uh, world religions, and of course within this war you have uh, the uh, Persian destruction of Jerusalem, or what was at least portrayed as the destruction of Jerusalem. You know the archaeological evidence and the textual evidence don't always agree in in all uh, cases, but. The sacking of Jerusalem can be compared, this was in the year 614, it can be compared with the fall of Rome in the year 410. As uh, St. Augustine, observing the uh, fall of Rome in 410, writes his his book, The City of God, and, and gives rise to all of these sort of utopian uh, visions, the uh, siege and fall of Jerusalem was was received with uh, equal uh, shock and horror and shook the Roman world to its foundation yet again and gave rise to uh, many of the same sort of uh, of, uh, of utopian and, and apocalyptic uh, notions uh, most famously, although it's not exclusively, but most famously, I would say, uh, the early parts of, of the Quran. So, as I say, at some point in the mid-620s, the Sasanian king, Khosrow II, would have predicted that his authority would be extended into Europe, He's ruling over Egypt and the, the 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 sort of relics of the defunct Roman Empire, and he would have had every reason to to feel confident and proud of his of his uh, uh, conquests, and 
of course, the world didn't continue that way. But if it had, our world would be incalculably different. And yet, even in its collapse, it contributes to the shape that Islam takes, both uh, you know, culturally and uh, politically. Would you say that that was uh, perhaps the lasting legacy of the Sasanians, or did they leave other elements that we sometimes overlook? That, well, uh, you know, there, there's a lot that could be said for the survival of of certain aspects of Sasanian art, and 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 some notion, perhaps some notions of, uh, you know, what we might call uh, medieval chivalry or. Uh, the sort of diplomatic protocol. Many of these things you could argue probably have their origin in Sasanian court etiquette and in uh, the the Sasanian concept of the mounted knight, which was something that the Romans came around to really slowly with, with and and with great uh, difficulty. And you, if you look at uh, carvings, uh, reliefs, uh, or uh, seal impressions of the, the Sasanian, you know, mounted warrior, you would only have to change very few details to get the, uh, you know, the sort of quintessentially medieval looking knight. You know, the, that, that might be an exaggeration, but it's not much of one. Uh, there's reason to think that Sasanian uh, literature it's very hard to very hard to make any meaningful generalizations about it because so little has survived. But from what we can tell, it seems to have inspired uh, chivalric romances, or you know, the sort of distant memory of that tradition uh, could have could have inspired that sort of thing. Um, art, artists, artistic, and architectural things also like the. Uh, you know, quintessentially uh, Byzantine-looking church with a sort of square, uh, square shape with a big dome on it. You know, that's that probably has uh, a Sasanian inspiration behind it, and um, various other things could be cited in that connection, like certain arches and so forth that inspired you know Gothic architecture and what have you. Um, but I think you're right that the the probably the most obvious and lasting legacy of the Sasanian world is the huge shadow that it cast over the the Muslim world. I, I believe that uh, Sasanian Sasanian models uh, of uh, statecraft and and uh, 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 artistry and so forth were the sort of principal impetus behind what we call the Islamic golden age and that uh, scholars of the Abbasid period are, you know, the, the, I think that a lot of them, uh, you know, might have debated this, but very many of them are, are, are quite obviously in awe of the achievements of, of, of this great uh, pre-Islamic empire. And, uh, if you think about it, the, 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 first, the first caliphate, the Umayyad caliphate, a purely Arabian 
venture is is very quickly overshadowed by the uh, by its successor, the Abbasid uh, Caliphate, that is you know very very obviously uh, uh, a, a Persian. Uh, per- Persian in identity, Iranian in identity. That uh, the capital is capital is moved from Damascus to not far from the old uh, Sasanian capital, and and uh, you know Sasanian court literature is 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 revived, and uh, various uh, you know political texts are 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 sort of used for the instruction of bureaucrats and and the caliphs and so forth and you know the whole sort of arabian nights genre of of literature that arose is is very explicitly sasanian uh in origin and of course we have the great flourishing of uh of persian um epic and metaphysical poetry that that draws on uh sasanian themes so unlike Unlike the as as in the in contrast to the Arab conquest of the Roman world, where you know nobody speaks Latin anymore, where you don't hear you don't hear people conversing in Coptic or or Syriac uh, or uh, you know Byzantine Greek anymore, uh, or 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 Ostrogothic. You know, all of those, all of those languages and identities are gone, with the possible exception of of uh, you know um, Assyrian revivalist movements or you know, Coptic nationalism and so forth. Um, but that's a huge contrast with with what happened in Iran, where the Persian language still survives, where um, the form of Islam practiced is 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 distinct from that in most other uh, parts of the old uh, uh, caliphate, and where you find that you know the old the the uh, the old Zoroastrian festival of the Nowruz, the, the the New Year's festival. Is still celebrated by by people of of uh, otherwise uh, orthodox uh, Shiite uh, Islamic uh, background, not so much as a religious festival, but as a national one. Uh, th- there is there is uh, perhaps no better uh, symbol of the uh, the legacy of the of the uh, of the Sasanian world than that, and. You might say that instead of instead of Islam sort of uh, you know uh, sort of appropriating Iran, that Iran sort of took Islam and made it Iranian. Hmm. Obviously, highly controversial and provocative, but uh, you know you, you you could you could go that far to uh, to to argue it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm always, uh, you know, I think I'm always going to be an enthusiast for uh, for Iranian history. My my friend, the uh, the British scholar uh, Philip Wood, and I are working on a translation uh, of the uh, the Arabic text called the Chronicle of Sayert. 
uh, he's uh, already published a, a fascinating book on this, and uh, you know we're we're just sort of polishing up uh, polishing up a translation and commentary for for publication hopefully soon. And uh, you know my life as a, my life as a political advisor in Canada uh, continues. It's always fun and exciting, <laughs> especially especially during a pandemic. And, um, you know, uh, life is just sort of uh, ticking along. Uh, One day, um, you know, the idea of if I'm ever fortunate enough to 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 do another edition of The Last Empire of Iran, uh, I I, I hope that I can eventually purge it of the lingering spelling mistakes and, and, uh, you know, few howlers that, that still lurk within the text. Um, but I'm sure I'm sure I'll have many opportunities to revisit uh, Sasanian history one way or another uh, in the future, and uh, hopefully when hopefully when the uh, pandemic is over, there'll be opportunities to travel, and uh, maybe I'll return to the Middle East one day. Well, I do hope you have an opportunity to, to re- revisit Sasanian history because it, you've made it clear, among other things in your in your book, that it is a subject that we definitely could stand to learn a lot more about. I think so. I mean, even in terms of modern foreign policy, I think that the Iranian identity is a complex one and, and um, an ancient one. And, and looking looking to the past, I think can can certainly, uh, if if nothing else, it can it can foster greater understanding. Well, Mike, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. My pleasure. Thank you very much.